don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, weaponization of life, human shields and hunger strikers with Banu Borgo. Hello everyone. Today my guest is uh, Banu Bargo, who's uh, a professor who's teaching political theory at the New School and uh, have a special, uh, a strong interest in the, in the Middle East, uh, as we will see. Um, she is the author of the book uh, uh, "Starven Immolates: uh, The Politics of Human Weapons" uh, at uh, Columbia University Press, and that recently received uh, an award uh, by the American Political Science Association for the best um, the best first book so uh, congratulations for that thank you <laughs> uh, so hello uh, hello banu hello uh, so today we will we will speak about um, maybe what you've been calling the, the weaponization of life but through two different figures Uh, that corresponds to two of your uh, research. One uh, in this book uh, that I just uh, that I just uh, cited about uh, um, uh, uh, prisoners in uh, Turkey in the early 2000s uh, and uh, starting some hunger strikes. So we we will we will talk about that. But also another another work, another research that are I think uh, deeply connected as well. Uh, in an article uh, for the journal Contemporary Political Theory about human shields. Um, and uh, so maybe the first thing we could probably talk about is, is uh, how, do you, how do you connect those two works together and uh, what, what might be the difference between, between both? Thank you. Um, so my interest in human shields grew out of the work that I've done for the book, uh, which is mainly looking at uh, forms of self-destruction that are mobilized for political struggle. And what I mean by that is practices that involve some kind of harm to the body, such as self-starvation, uh, but not just self-starvation. It could be uh, other s forms of self-harm. Um, such as self-immolation, by which I mean setting oneself on fire, um, or more aggressive and offensive practices, uh, offensive and aggressive towards others, uh, such as suicide attacks. So um, I try to, in the book, I try to look at these kinds of acts as a new repertoire of political struggle. Um, and uh, of radical political struggle, uh, and I try to uh, conceptualize it, theorize it, uh, under the um, name, the weaponization of life. Um, but I wanted to challenge myself to try to think about what it would mean um, not to uh, use your life as a weapon towards others in order to Um, make a statement or in order to um, uh, achieve certain political goals uh, and to advance a cause, but in order to, or in the service of protecting others, especially in uh, warfare. And that led me to think about uh, human shields as a form that is kind of opposed to especially the belligerent forms of the weaponization of life, such as suicide attacks. In fact, I saw the two figures, the suicide bomber and the human shield, as almost inverse figures of one another. And I really wanted to think through the human shield as a figure of the, of the present um, uh, with the background Uh, you know, thinking in the background sort of the belligerent practices of, of warfare. Uh, so that kind of brought me to the idea of human shields and thinking about that and doing research on that. Mm. Uh, could, could we, you, we, we've both been uh, 
um, talking about weaponization of life, and in the book you you make a point to say that it's not weaponization of the body, it's weaponization of life, and I was wondering if that would not be as well the, the difference between between the let's say the hunger striker and and the human shield, insofar that as you explained the the. Uh, someone who, who begins a hunger strike or any other form of self-sacrifice, uh, um, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, I mean, I'm going to let you explain, obviously, but but like, as, uh, might might be um, might be related to all those biopolitical uh, uh, subjectification of, of 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 life and the sort of answers to that, whereas the human shield. It has more to do in placing uh, one's anatomy, so to speak, within a targeting targeting line. But mm -hmm. it may be a little bit more material, so to speak. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it makes sense at all. But uh. um, I mean, I think that all of these forms of resistance or struggle are material because they're done with the body. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. I mean, a hunger striker has to. Um, go through a long and arduous process of the decomposition of the body that's extremely painful and the struggle not to eat um, the struggle not to drink if it's like a rigorous strike where there's a very limited intake of um, liquids as well it's an extremely physical process uh, similarly setting oneself on fire maybe it's shorter but it's an extremely painful material act. Human shielding, I think, is also extremely material. I don't think there's a big difference in terms of the materiality there, but what I wanted to um, say through this distinction between weaponizing one's life is to say that in these practices, um, there is a more metaphysical element uh, about the meaning of life that is at stake. Now, for hunger striking and self-immolation and suicide attacks, it's more um, belligerent in the sense that it's really being utilized as a weapon um, of attack. The attack can be a symbolic attack, but it's still an attack. Whereas with human shielding... Um, I haven't really coined a term that would be uh, the obverse of weaponization. Maybe one could say a counter-weaponization of life, if you, if you will, for human shielding. But I do think that there's still um, the element of a metaphysics of life that is being expressed in the act of human shielding. And what I mean by that is, is this. Um, in these kinds of actions that involve putting one's life on the line um, uh, in a sacrificial way uh, or self-sacrificial way, um, one is actually um, making a commentary that um, a certain form of life is worth living. And that form of life is often connected to a life um, a political cause or justice or claims to justice, claims of recognition. Um, but it's not just about mere survival, right? Because if, if these actors were concerned about their own physical survival, uh, this would probably not be the uh, kind of uh, act of resistance that they would choose to pursue. Um, so... Yes, it's done with the body, but the body, in my interpretation, becomes more of a vessel to make a larger intervention about, this is not the kind of life I want to live. I want to live a meaningful life, and if I can't live that life, um, I'd rather die. Now, this is more the hunger strikers and the self-immolators. With human shields there is still a sense that I don't care so much about my own survival at the cost of the survival of others. What I want to do instead is to assert that life has an inherently political meaning by putting myself as a defensive shield before more uh, vulnerable 
populations that have become targets of uh, violent actions during warfare. So um, I, I try to open a little bit of a wedge between just the material body and um, uh, the more metaphysical claims that are being advanced. Um, and, and by metaphysical, it sounds extremely abstract and sophisticated, but what I simply want to say is that only a certain kind of life is worth living, a politically defined life, a, a life defined by justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so far we, we've been talking about human shield as if... Um, as if we knew what we were talking about, I suppose. And, and uh, I mean, when we were preparing this conversation, we, we were addressing a few examples. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, the sort of Israeli army communication about the sort of um, legitimization of, of, their, of their bombing on, on Gaza, pretending that um, uh, the population of, of, of Gaza was used as human shield and, and voluntary human shields because they had been they had, they had been electing uh, Hamas uh, in uh, in Gaza so um, denying stripping them from any status of civilian you were mentioning the Turkish government doing similar things in Kurdistan um, but so maybe maybe we can go back to the, the sort of uh, cultural context in which this, this, these two words are being put together and uh, and I think that's what something you, you're doing very clearly in your in your article so could you maybe drive us through walk us through this uh, this concept to begin with uh, I'll try I mean it's it's a battlefield yeah. the concept itself right so human shielding or human shields is um, it's become uh, an extremely abused term. Um, that certain states feel free to use uh, in order to justify some of their violent practices against civilians. To, so to say, for example, um, that you know, a certain civilian population um, uh, is in fact a human shield um, delegitimizes their civilian status in a way, or it's utilized in, a, in order to delegitimize their civilian status, in order to um, uh, justify this, that state's uh, attacking practices. You mentioned the case of Israel. Um, in, in the, in the uh, Turkish example, for example, just uh, last week, um, when the Turkish state bombed uh, a village in northern Iraq, um, there were allegations that actually this was a civilian village and not a camp of uh, the PKK, and that there were um, numerous civilian deaths, eight or nine, I believe. Um, so the um, foreign ministry issued a statement uh, saying that they will look into this, and these allegations of civilian deaths will be seriously Um, investigated but in the same one paragraph statement uh, the foreign affairs the ministry uh, claimed that um, but it is possible that the PKK or it is well known that the PKK uses human shields so already in the um, in the initial statement initial press release Uh, addressing uh, this bombing, which is a a potential um, uh, case with international law, uh, the state was uh, referencing um, or or implying that uh, the PKK might be utilizing civilians as human shields in order to cover up its own uh, bases or operations or weapons or materiel or whatever, so um, thereby justifying uh, Turkey's attack. So um, in this sense, this is not really the sense of human shields, the use of the human shields that I'm really interested in or that my research has been interested in. Um, I've been really interested in utilizing human shielding as a practice um, as a voluntary practice of resistance. So I'm, I try to make it very clear in the article 
uh, that we need to separate voluntary forms of human shielding in which people actually go by their own volition to conflict zones and place themselves in those areas uh, in order to deter an attack from involuntary human shielding where a civilian population might be actually utilized uh, in order to protect um, strategic uh, resources or um, weaponry or whatever. Now, the involuntary human shielding, of course, might or might not be true. Uh, it might just simply be a, a cover uh, that the uh, attacking state is, is, is utilizing. Or it might be true in some cases. Um, but again, this is, this is not necessarily what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is how can we reclaim this extremely abused term of human shielding um, and understand some of its um, uh, resources for a nonviolent practice of resistance uh, that some activists have uh, utilized, especially in the war uh, on Iraq, but also um, in uh, uh, Palestine and in uh, Kurdistan. So um, that, that really has been... Um, my focus. Mm -hmm. um, one one aspect um, one aspect of uh, human shielding that you seem to be interested in as well, and and that you 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 described as well in 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 the book in the case of uh, 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 especially uh, self immolation and and we can think uh, and you're you're citing the the uh, Tunisian man who. who mm. Who is said to have started uh, the the Arab Spring and some sort of maybe a little bit romanticization of history, but it it is true that it, it definitely was a trigger to at least uh, what happened in Tun Tunisia. Uh, so one aspect of, of those things is the spectacularity of, of of the gesture, right? And I'm interested in how this can be working in favor of this person accomplishing this political act through their body but also how this might actually backfire mm. and I'm thinking of specifically of Rachel Corey here the, yes. this young American uh, white American woman who uh, went to to Rafa in uh, March 2006 and died under their under their um, Died from from the from putting her body on the line of those uh, caterpillar D9 bulldozers of the Israeli army uh, that were about to destroy a house. And as much as uh, as much as we should recognize uh, the absolute dignity of her gesture and uh, the and quite simply the, the incredible courage that it takes to to do so. It seems like the cause she she was uh, supporting by doing so, which is like not to not to, to avoid the destruction of uh, Palestinian homes, was overshadowed by the fact that uh, by her own body, so to speak, like this this very very uh, pure figure of innocent of the the young white woman somehow that that perish uh, uh, um, that perish uh, by the bulldozer. Mm. And I'm sorry, that's quite a, a very long, uh, <laughs> a very long uh, thought here. But like, I I'm wondering if somehow behind this notion of human shielding, we don't also fall into the figure of innocence. That's a very problematic. Uh, that's a very problematic figure because we have a picture of what innocence looked like, and the 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 least the least you would look like this like this figure, the least. You would con be considered as innocent. I mean, we we saw that last year with with the siege on Gaza, where children were considered as innocent, but somehow adults maybe less so. When actually, I mean, I, I don't know what is the logic behind that, but it's, it's it seems very problematic. So, I don't know. Is it is it something that you're interested in as well? In how how the human shielding might the human shield the person who who make this act of human shield is uh, it also involuntar involuntarily 
implies himself or herself within this sort of discourse, this problematic discourse of innocence? That's a really interesting question. Um, let me say that I have enormous respect for the activists like Rachel Corey, whose example actually was one of the inspirations of the essay that I wrote, um, who, with the courage and, and um, you mentioned dignity and the belief, the conviction, uh, are able to uh, undertake such an action. Really, I have enormous respect. Um, that being said, I do think that you put your finger on something um, that I've also been uh, grappling with, with respect to human shielding. And, and that is that for human shielding to work, for it to be effective, it actually has to um, work with an assumption of a, some kind of a hierarchalized humanity that some lives are more valuable than others. It doesn't... It, this is the last thing that an activist becoming a voluntary human shield would want to affirm, right? It's precisely with the belief in equality, dignity, the right of peoples to their homeland, or, you know, whatever principles might be motivating uh, the, in, uh, the voluntary human shields, that they go there and do what they do. But at the same time, for the action to work, for the action to have traction in the global media, um, for it to resonate with um, uh, broad audiences, somehow, always, there needs to be uh, a difference between the activist you mentioned, white, American, whatever, a privileged activist who goes to uh, a zone where um, uh, the, the civilians that are there, their lives are somewhat always less valuable, le more disposable, let's say. So um, now one can say that human shielding is a strategic deployment of the privilege of the activists. If privilege, in this case, is maybe carrying a U.S. passport or being white, whatever it might be. Um, and in a way, ironically, we know Rachel Corey's name much more than we know, for example, the activists from Turkey who um, uh, made a human chain uh, in order to uh, protest the bombing of northern Iraq. Uh, right, so so we know her name. The fact that we know her name already signifies that there is more of a privilege at stake. Uh, one can say it's also better publicity, but publicity is directly related with the, uh, that kind of privilege as well. So uh, so yes, I mean you mentioned innocence, and maybe one way of of, of framing the same problem or addressing the same problem that I mentioned by privilege is also the construction of the white Western activist as uh, innocent and establishing just like a hierarchy of values of life, hierarchy of uh, levels of innocence or presumed guilt. Um, so I, I agree with you that there is this problem and it's a significant problem, but this also actually helps us to achieve a more dialectical understanding of human shields, and, and by which uh, I mean um, uh, that human shielding is not the solution to contemporary warfare around the globe. It is a form of resistance to it. I think it's a good form of resistance to it. It's an important form of resistance to it. But that doesn't mean that um, uh, we should idealize it it actually carries a lot of the contradictions uh, of the contemporary political conjuncture um, that it is uh, coming out of. And one of those contradictions is uh, that even though every human being should be of uh, the same value, that's not the case. So maybe there is this um, hierarchical 
humanity that sort of produces the human shield as a form of protest against it. Um, but part of that protest, which is the strategic deployment of that privilege in reverse, um, it might be that it ends up affirming that hierarchy that it wants to challenge in the first place. So if we have a, um, a more dialectical sense of what human shielding is um, in relation to the conditions that produce it, we may actually get a more accurate picture and avoid um, a kind of idealization of this form of action. Mm. And I guess one, one good example of this problem as well is the fact that we never talk about uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, people who, who died in their own house. Not, I mean, sometimes because they are surprised by the bulldozers, but uh, uh, more often so because they just absolutely refuse to to move from this house that will be destroyed, which is also another form of human shielding to some degree, even though it might not be direct as as spectacularized in the sort of um, in the in putting putting oneself in, in between but in the end it's 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 a relatively a relatively similar process and in the case of Rachel Corey we don't know whether ultimately the houses she was defended defending was ultimately destroyed or not which also shows a sort of shift of uh, the shift of um, of what is it that we are looking at somehow mm -hmm. uh, but Uh, but again, this has nothing to do with her gesture herself. This has everything to do with the reading we have of the gesture itself, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I think the reading that we have of human shielding, um, the kinds of actions that we are interested in and we read about, we want to learn more about, or the kinds of actions that um, we feel more distant to or unmoved by, this really is a reflection on our sensibilities more than um, the activists who are engaging uh, in this kind of action. And um, the fact that we are focusing on a singular individual trying to do something perhaps says something about our impotence uh, or our desire for heroes or our... Um, Um, interest in spectacle. I mean, you mentioned spectacle several times. I think it's a really absolutely important part of this kind of protest, as well as uh, the weaponization of life. I mean, self-immolation or hunger striking. These are actions that are done uh, for an audience, and they render death into a spectacular form, into a spectacle. Um, and that gaze, the gaze of the public, is extremely crucial if this kind of action is to have any kind of effectivity. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you can obviously starve yourself um, in protest, in defense of certain principles, but only you will know it. And, the, uh, and the, um, maybe if you're in the prison, only the prison guard will know it, right? So... Um, there is an element of um, publicity that's absolutely crucial for this kind of action to achieve a greater impact. And um, uh, the, that spectacular element is um, sometimes it works against, as, as you said, the, the uh, activism mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that you can't control uh, the publicity, the, the framing Uh, obviously, of 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 uh, the way in which your, your um, action will be broadcast is not in your hands. So um, uh, there's a there's a risk in that. There's a um, danger um, in that uh, in the sense that your message can be um, quite distorted, and and it may not reach the audience mm -hmm. you wanted to reach. Well, and I think that offers us a, a, an excellent transition towards uh, the, the, the hunger strikes in, uh, in Turkish prisons and uh, this book you wrote about, about uh, this, uh, uh, both this sort of historical and political account and w what it might mean at a, at a let's say, philosophical level, so to speak, uh, um, in the fact that the hunger strike might 
maybe because they register within a longer time uh, and quite often are not spectacularized uh, as uh, pictorially, so to speak, even though, as you said, uh, uh, the, the, the effect on the body of oneself is, uh, are absolutely tremendous. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing and uh, that it's probably a pretty accurate depiction in uh, Steve McQueen's film uh, Hunger in the Northern Ireland. Um, and, and, and that may be something we don't immediately think about because, again, we, we don't have a sort of access to this, to this, uh, to this uh, uh, vision of the body um, fragilized by, by, uh, by the hunger strike. And it seems like in this case, it might be more uh, about the, um, the responsibility of the potential death and the sort of uh, the time that precedes this death in, in, in holding the responsibility. I mean, you, you, you're, you're obviously uh, talking a little bit about Gandhi uh, uh, in, in the book as, as someone who's been using this tactic quite often and with a with a western colonial government that that didn't want to make a, a figure of of a martyrd martyrdom um, through 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 him so we managed somehow to obtain um, um, a few things in the independent struggle of india um, but so so how could we how can we interpret that maybe as a, as a as a as another form of weaponization of life uh that seems like it does not fully operate in the same way that the human shells that we just evoked you mentioned Steve McQueen's movie Hunger which I think is a really fascinating brilliant movie which I've also written about um in in some of my previous work um yeah, the hunger strike in, in Turkish prisons um, was a very important moment, I think, in the history of the Turkish left. Um, and uh, it was a very long protest. It started in 2000. I, I just want to give a little bit of background uh, to some of the listeners who might not know. Um, but it started in October 2000 as a protest against the introduction of high security prisons um, ma or maximum security prisons in Turkey. Um, before that moment, uh, the prison system was mainly characterized by uh, an architecture, uh, a prison architecture that was based on wards, where actually prisoners um, could sustain a collective life. So um, anywhere from 30 to 100 prisoners would be housed in one ward together. And especially for political prisoners, this was extremely important because they sustained a collective life. They organized their life um, in the form of communes, and um, which helped them in their everyday uh, organization, but also as a political um, way to sustain their uh, identity and their and their uh, political commitments, and also to withstand some of the intrusions of uh, state authorities when they came to do, um, uh, you know, searches and um, and sometimes even uh, physical attacks. So it, it was a shield, if you want, against the violence of um, uh, prison uh, guards. Now, uh, when the uh, Turkish government decided to introduce uh, high-security prisons, this meant um, putting prisoners in an isolated form into individual cells, either individual or up to three people in one cell, which was a significant uh, threat to the communal life behind bars. And um, uh, this became a very important uh, issue uh, for political prisoners, and they decided to uh, protest it by uh, a hunger strike, a first of infinite duration, which was then converted into a fast unto death when the state um, did not agree to any of the demands of the prisoners. Now, um, as I said earlier, I, in the book, I try to 
understand what is common to uh, the self-destructive practices uh, that I mentioned, like hunger striking, death fast, self-immolation, suicide attacks. But this doesn't mean that they're all the same. Obviously, there's a big difference between suicide attacks that um, involve the hurting of others, the harming of others, versus uh, hunger strikes that really only hurt the agent that is um, engaged in the practice of self-starvation. Um, that is one difference. The, the, there are many other differences phenomenologically that we can uh, sort of outline. Um, but what was really interesting in the Turkish case to me was the transformation from um, a hunger strike, which I think is um, something that um, uh, can be assimilated within a Marxist vocabulary from, you know, um, with its associations with a labor strike, right, hunger strike, to a death fast, which is... Um, a transformation of the terms of the action and fasting obviously is related to more religious practices, right? So um, what does this mean? What did that mean to, to move from a hunger strike to a fast unto death or a death fast? Obviously we're talking about a Muslim context, but these activists, which what further complicated the issue for me was that these weren't Islamists, these weren't necessarily even religious people. They were self-proclaimed Marxists, radical leftists, extra-parliamentary leftists um, that had revolutionary commitments. And most of them were atheists. So how do we understand this transformation? This was something that I found intriguing. And um, uh, I tried to interpret this as... Um, uh, in, in the sense that, it, or, or by looking at how following this action enacts certain transformations in the discourses, in the practices, in the rituals that um, these activists engage in, these prisoners engaged in, uh, trying to understand how in some ways it theologizes their Marxism. Uh, leading to a different combination of what I call sacrificial Marxism. Um, where martyrdom becomes really, really central to uh, one's self-understanding of uh, the political line, the correct political line, the radical political line, um, which is quite intriguing, if you want. So um, that transformation, I think, was um, uh, intriguing precisely because of the, of the um, people who uh, were engaged in it uh, were not pious themselves. Um, and it also spoke to a certain absolutism that inheres in this kind of protest, um, and an absolute level of commitment, an absolute level of conviction that is necessary to sustain it. Otherwise, um, it's very difficult to actually participate and uh, sustain this form of uh, this practice. Um, of resistance, I think. Mm -hmm. But it, you talked about martyrdom, and I completely see it in the case of self-immolation, for example, or any form of, uh, uh, it's a strange thing to say, but maybe immediate, um, immediate death involved, whereas I feel that maybe in the case of hunger striking of uh, death, fa uh, fa um, death fast, um, it's it's more the martyr martyrdom in the process that that is um, that is involved in the sense that the the person involved in this in this tactic is not is aiming towards death but uh, somehow hopes to never reach it and to 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 bring to to bring oneself to a critical point where there is a sort of political um, uh, Negotiation happening, uh, so that, that it, don't you think it's also another another form of differentiation in those different different forms of uh, of self sacrifice? 
I mean, I think um, uh, I think you're right to say that the individuals who engage in hunger striking, for example, uh, they don't do this because they want to die. And um, in contrast to some of the crude characterizations that one can find in the mainstream media about how these people are brainwashed, how they have nothing to lose, how they don't value their life, etc. In fact, in all of the interviews that I've done with people who had participated in the hunger strike, um, what was fascinating was this extreme strong commitment to life. Mm -hmm. And everyone that I've spoken to affirmed their desire to live. Now, granted, I wasn't speaking to them while they were on hunger strike. This was afterwards, or with people who had uh, quit or had been made to quit uh, because of um, non-consensual medical intervention. But none of them, when they went back and and, uh, reminisced about their experiences, none of them... Um, uh, revealed any kind of desire uh, not to live. So you're absolutely right that um, with the hunger strike, in contrast to self-immolation or suicide attacks, there is an element of uh, negotiation, right, or the possibility of negotiation, or br- of bringing yourself to a certain point, which um, will then motivate. The, the public to exert pressure on the authorities in order to um, come to some kind of an agreement or give you some concessions, etc. But what I also found really, really interesting was um, that in my conversations with various different participants, and I have to say that there were 12 different uh, groups and parties, uh, all Marxist, um, and all of them outlawed parties that engaged in this kind of protest, Um, I spoke to different uh, participants from various different affiliations, and even sometimes, you know, when I spoke again to uh, the same people, they had um, a change of interpretations because the narrative was constantly evolving at the time when I um, did the research for this. What I found is that they there were actually um, different interpretations, different self-interpretations of what they were doing. So some of the activists, some of the prisoners, uh, or ex-prisoners, I should say, um, considered this as um, a way to resist uh, the... Um, uh, intrusions to uh, their human dignity, which they considered the super maximum security prison to be, um, or uh, human rights abuses in prison, and and the Turkish prison system is not um, uh, famous for its uh, good practices, as we know. Um, so, so there, there was sort of a, a stream of, of interpretation that valorized sort of the tactical element of hunger striking, the ability to both resist, make a statement, but also uh, negotiate. But there were also other strands, and um, one strand, for example, was to view hunger striking as any kind of other uh, as any other kind of, of uh, struggle. Uh, so fighting on the street for, for these people was um, sort of the same thing as starving yourself, which was the same thing as um, uh, being a guerrilla fighter, for example. So they had an equivalence between all forms of protest and they could do whatever was necessary for the cause at that time. And then there was another uh, strand which I thought was really unique. Um, And that was um, a more absolutist uh, version, interpretation, let's say, which um, saw in this action um, an element of refusal that even though these people did not want to die, they refused to live in the way that they were allowed to live. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it kind of 
it was in a in a gray zone let's say that was not just about the tactical the instrumental use about uh hunger striking about like coming to that critical moment and using it as a bargaining chip but rather as sort of an absolute stand that you have to pursue um to the end mm -hmm. And that, I think, what I try to refer to as sort of the theologization of the protest, um, one could also find in this strand of interpretation that, that um, death is the only way to resist. Mm -hmm. So I think there are these two uh, different elements, let's say the more tactical and the more absolutist, that kind of coexist um, in a large in a mass protest such as the one that, that I studied. Mm -hmm. And I guess every time we look at one particular resistive tactic, uh, this should inform grandly, uh, obviously, what is it against that this form of resistance is directed to. And in the case of hunger strike, it's it very clearly asks a question of sovereignty as well. And uh, in the conclusion of, the, of your book, you talk about the monopsony of, of sacrifice, the idea that right. only the state has the right to sacrifice its subjects. Uh, even the subject themselves cannot sacrifice themselves. Uh, uh, so it can sacrifice the subject by bringing them to war, to, to mobilizing them in the army, or this kind of thing. So somehow... The hunger, the hunger strike, and the self-sacrifice is uh, the, the transgressing of this uh, monopoly of sacrifice that the, the, the state the state has, and I'm, I guess one particular object that that really shows the sort of um, the sovereignty that's being applied onto those bodies and onto Everybody is in, in what we call the, bi the biopolitical and the sort of organization of life, the regulation of life, is, is the, the force-fitting uh, apparatus that the Israeli are using on Palestinian prisoners or uh, the U.S. on Guantanamo prisoners uh, in, in this very, very odd apparatus where one would force-fit a body, which is, I mean, I guess we have to hear the absurdity of it when, when in its most, uh, in its most uh, immediate meaning of it. And um, uh, once again, I'm not sure where I'm heading with that, but but the, I, I guess what I mean is is is, uh, is well, precisely about about this question of sovereignty. Uh, how how does this resistance inform about the sovereignty we live in, right? It's, thank you for bringing this up because this is actually the, the central thesis of my book and, and somehow I managed to um, you know talk around it but not really get to the main topic until you ask the question. So one of the ways that I am interpreting these forms of protest in the book is to say that we have to understand these protests not simply as okay, they're distinguished by their self-destructive nature, but why are they doing this? What is, the, what is it that they are responding to? So to actually put it in the context of the power relations out of which they emerge, uh, which they oppose, and uh, in some ways um, uh, in which they are entangled. So... When I try to understand the specificity of this form of protest, which I call weaponization of life, but I also emphasize that it's a necropolitical form of resistance or protest, um, is that actually it is um, a response to a certain politicization of life uh, that is deployed by those in power, by the government, the state, but not just, like also localized authorities like the prison and the authorities within the prison complex, such as the psychological 
uh, apparatus or the um, uh, the uh, institutional sort of uh, mechanisms of control, etc. So, um, in some ways, I see this response as a reaction to uh, the pervasive. Uh, politicization of life, the extension of control over all aspects of life. And this is particularly vivid in the prison where every element of your life is under uh, the gaze of the, the, the panopticon, right? Um, uh, under the gaze of the guards. But um, also much more, in, you know, in a general sense, um, in the way in which the state is regulating uh, different aspects of our lives. Now, uh, what I find in the literature that is inspired by the great uh, work of Foucault um, is that there is a tendency to sometimes say that with the emergence of biopolitics, sovereignty uh, is becoming uh, is receding or is becoming superseded by this new form of, of power and power relations. Now, what I see, um, especially in the Turkish case, but not just, because I don't think it's an exceptional case, um, is precisely that state sovereignty is incredibly um, good at utilizing biopolitical tactics and incorporating them into the tissue of its own power. So um, the more... Uh, sovereign power becomes biopolitical, the more we see actually forms of protest that try to take uh, what is being colonized, let's say life, um, turn it back and, and weaponize it against the power regime that um, is uh, politicizing life. So uh, that kind of dynamic, a dialectic if you want, between the biosovereignization of power um, or the biopoliticization of sovereignty and the necropoliticization of resistance was something that I was trying to look at in the book and to um, uh, situate the, the Turkish uh, death fast struggle sort of in this uh, dynamic. That, that, was my, uh, that was my goal. Well, I, I think uh, that's probably... Uh, a very good conclusion in, in how uh, a struggle that we might not be immediately uh, confronted to on a daily basis, uh, and that depends depends uh, to all of us, obviously, but might necessarily inform us about our own, our own way of being in society. So um, I, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Benu, for, for uh, um, Coming to this conclusion, and and then thank you for thank you for your time today to to talk about to talk about these works that I obviously recommend to to everyone. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>